During the Arctic winters, sea ice gets so thick that icebreakers can't penetrate, which is a huge problem if you're a scientist who wants to take measurements on the ground in the central Arctic during the winter, because it lasts for six months. The solution is to travel up north deep into the ice sheet during the summer while the ice is still thin and then wait for winter to arrive. That's exactly what a group of scientists did in 2019 as part of the Mosaic Expedition, which is the largest Arctic expedition in history. On today's episode of the podcast, I speak with Louisa von Abadou, who was a member of that 2019 expedition. We talk about retreating ice sheets, polar bears, global warming, and the beauty of the Arctic, amongst many other topics. This is a fascinating conversation. I had a lot of fun recording it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Before starting, though, I should mention that in the first minute or so of the recording, you might hear some traffic in the background. That's a problem that was solved pretty early on by shutting a window. So for those with uh, sensitive ears, just jump forward to about the three-minute mark and you should be fine. Cheers. Escaped sapiens. I wanted to start by, first of all, giving a basic uh, picture of just some a cartoon of some numbers. So, you know, what have we lost in the Arctic over the past 50 or 100 or so years in terms of ice cover, sea ice cover? Yeah, that's really dramatic and um, also probably one of the yeah, most visible signs of climate change. Um, we've lost basically um, something like 4 million square meters of, of ice. And uh, yeah, that's roughly half of the um, sea ice cover we had um, before in the pre-industrial level. So it's really a really big change that is well visible. Is, is it only the extent or also the thickness that's changed? Uh, both of them. So what I've just given you are the numbers for the extent. But the thickness also um, halved in the last six decades, roughly. So um, it's uh, we used to have something like um, two and a half meters at the end of the, the melting season. So when the uh, sea ice is the thinnest. And now we only have something like a bit um, more than one meter and, and maybe 50. So there's also a quite dramatic change. And uh, the big difference is especially that um, the ice is getting younger. And this is also the reason why the ice is thinner. So the ice used to be in the Arctic for something like, yeah, multiple years, two, three. And, and now it's just that the ice barely survives one summer. Sometimes it only so, um, doesn't survive the summer. So uh, that means that we're just having younger ice and that is just naturally thinner as well. Have we had a summer with no ice cover yet? No, no, we, we always had some ice cover and also in the future there will always be in the summer um, most likely a bit of ice, but um, we, we talk about uh, concentrations, so this means like how many parts of ice are in, in a certain area um, of 15% when we say that the Arctic is ice-free. So um, there's always a bit of ice. And in winter, there's probably um, also in the future always ice because the ice is refreezing in the winter. But then in the summer, it's most likely that we will get yeah, ice-free summers in the Arctic. But that, that's, in, that's a huge amount of ice. So in terms of, if do you have a picture in terms of uh, comparing it to say the, the size of Europe or in terms of sizes of countries, what, what, what's the loss there? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I'm afraid I cannot really help you with a good image there um, because I just think of the Arctic um, by just looking at it. And um, hmm. no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not having a really good- But it's about 50%. Yes, and that's quite a lot. Um, yeah, and I guess it's always a good thing just to, to to have a look at an Arctic map that actually looks completely different than the maps that we're used to because in our maps, 
the world is stretched out and the focus is somehow on, on Europe or, or Central um, um, America. But when we look at the Arctic maps, we, we look from above. So it's like looking from the, uh, yeah, more to the, just with the North Pole in the center. And then you see that the, the former ice extent was reaching all the way down to, yeah, along the Greenland coast. And now it is basically stopping at, yeah, um, something at a height of, of um, Svalbard, what is about 80 degrees north. So it's quite a big difference. Has, what, has that had a big uh, impact on the climate in Greenland? So can they now grow stuff there that previously they couldn't? Or is, do they view it as a, a good thing in these areas? <laughs> um, I mean, the coupling between now or air temperatures and, and maybe factors like humidity and precipitation that are important for growing food. Um, I, of course, on the long run, also coupled to the sea ice extent, but not directly. So it's not all of the sudden so much warmer in Greenland that um, the, the inland ice, so the glaciers that are sitting there have been melting, um, what would be kind of a requirement for growing uh, food there. Um, but for sure, it changed the navi like the, the navigation, and I think we all heard the, the headlines about um, yeah um, cargo uh, uh, ships and and at least icebreakers that passed over the the North Pole to from from Europe to Asia, so to take this the shortcut, um, and and this is changing so that the the Arctic is yeah getting more accessible for for um, ships. It's also more tense, right? So Russia and North America, Canada, they're all trying to make claims uh, for these waterways and this sort of thing. Is that, a, is that something that you worry about at all or people talk about at all? And when you're, uh, this is getting ahead of the conversation, for sure, but <laughs> when you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, is, is this being discussed by the scientists that you sit around the table with? Um, yes, I think the political component is, of course, always there. And I think we worry most about... Um, uh, the increase in ship traffic because it uh, also changes and, and affects this really vulnerable um, um, ecosystem there. Um, just for example, uh, those ships often transport um, uh, away, uh, water, um, ballast water. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, they release it. And, um, and, and if they pass over the, the, um, the route, they of course are going to release um, ballast water that came maybe from the lower latitudes in the higher Arctic and with it a lot of um, microorganisms, for example. So that changed uh, the system there. And um, this is, of course, an aspect. And yes, the political aspect, um, I think that's actually more a question that is also related to geology, because the question is, where are the, the borders of the different countries in the Arctic? And this is normally answered of course, on a political um, level, but uh, often also with um, uh, geological questions where the, the end of a, of a country is. And yeah, is that, so yeah, a bit. Is that something when you're uh, organizing a scientific mission, you actually have to be cognizant of? Uh, are you allowed to sail this ship? Currently where you're sailing, is it uh, international waters or, or what's the story there? Um, it depends. Um, sometimes we also um, ask to do research in, for example, the Russian Arctic, and then we definitely, uh, definitely need a permit. And uh, this is um, also quite a lot of work that you need to organize and ask, and you have to clearly state what measurements do you plan to do there, and um, and sometimes also a bit difficult to take um, take samples with you. So it is a lot of um, yeah 
permits in the beginning that you need to organize. And then, for example, around um, Greenland, there are just protection zones. Um, so we're not allowed or necessarily allowed to enter with a ship. So then you need to apply as well and, and state what you're planning to do and why you're not harming the local environment. So, yeah. Has this already has there already been some evidence of damage occurring from uh, dumping of ballast water, or is that something that is expected to happen in the future? Future as uh, ship numbers increase. Um, I think it's it's a common problem not only in the Arctic that this ballast water can change the the local environment, um, and I think there have been also now. Um, um, more more strict uh, requirements on filters that this mm-hmm. doesn't harm it so much. For this particular case now with ballast water in the Arctic, I, I'm not sure how much of an issue that is already. Um, I think there have been some some theoretical studies on it. What could be the effect of it? Hmm. So, in, in terms of your own interests uh, in research, was it the was it sort of the retreat of uh, sea ice that got you first interested in polar research, or how did you first come into this story? Uh, I think uh, it was the glaciers, <laughs> okay. not so much the sea ice, because um, yeah, I think glaciers are just really, really beautiful and majestic somehow. They're they so huge, and um, and if you look at them, you you can't really imagine that this is just like frozen and compacted snow and and then all the colors so it was really the, the beauty of them and uh, that fascinated me when i got to know them in of course the alps but also later on when i stayed um, in svalbard mm. um, glaciers are often also let's say something like a long-term record of the climate they um, react quite uh, quite slowly to climate changes and if you look at them um, how they retreat or advance you can say something about the the general um, yeah the general climate state of the earth so um, I got to know them also from um, a geological perspective because if you look at the let's say the leftovers from the glaciers you can also say what the temperature was approximately um, during a specific state in the in the earth so it's it's a bit like a historical book for the climate of of, um, of the earth and um, that's why I was really fascinated by them what they actually can tell us and and yeah, that's how I got to know them. And then from glaciers, I moved on to other components of, of the cryosphere. And yeah, then I found the sea ice. So, so were um, you specifically doing research on uh, temperature in previous uh, eras? Or, or what, what was the research you were doing on the glaciers? On the glaciers? Um, yeah, I, we had an, an ice core. So... Um, uh, it's just like uh, you take a core from from the glacier, what can sometimes be something like seven hundred meters long, and that documents then the um, the temperature of um, of this um, yeah of this really long time record. It depends how old the glacier is. Um, and I was actually trying to figure out a better age model for that ice core because it's cool to know the temperature, but it's it's even better if you know when that temperature was actually occurring. So we tried to to date this ice core. That was my glacier-related research. Wait, 700 meters from, from above? How, how big yeah. are these? The ice cores or no, the uh, glaciers? The, the glaciers are 700 meters tall? Yeah, hey. sometimes even bigger. The one in Antarctica are something like two kilometers thick. Oh, I had no idea. That's enormous. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. <laughs> That's okay, a lot so... of water, you know? That's a lot of water that could end up in our ocean and, and just rise to sea level. <laughs> I see. Are there other discoveries that are happening as well with the glacial retreat? So I know with the permafrost melting, you have 
these creatures that are being found from, you know, that have been preserved in wolves and, and all sorts of animals. It, it, are there similar stories there in uh, Svalbard and, and Greenland and other areas with uh, exposure of uh, interesting things? Or mm, um, I mean, glaciers tend to also um, uh, kind of uh, crash everything <laughs> and, and compress it. <laughs> so it's, it's not the best... <laughs> thing to to conserve it even though it's cool so that's probably good but um um especially yeah rocks and everything else just smashed together um but i'm pretty sure there has been also probably fossils found in the context of of glacier retreat that were just maybe located below glaciers and wasn't also um this this um um human um from the Neanderthals, like this, this different homo, this different species of the humans, wasn't that also found in a glacier? I'm right? not sure which in one. In the Alps? Okay, sorry. <laughs> is this is this no. is this Aussie you're thinking of? Yeah, maybe was it maybe wasn't that found in a glacier? I mean, that's. Uh... I don't know. I think I think that was a uh, Homo sapiens, though. I think. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Not okay. Good. Not, not <laughs> one of those. Okay. But yeah, you're right. So the the glaciers actually carve out geology rather than preserving little uh, bones and little specimens. Yes. Yes. And then they leave certain yeah. formations of rocks and you can later on detect them and find them also for example on the sleep on the seafloor um we we mapped the seafloor with um eco sounding so just we went there by ship and then we had a signal was sent out to the seafloor and reflected and then we could kind of uh, get a yeah a surface map of the, the seafloor and uh, with this you can detect where the glaciers were located during for example the last ice age and then mm. you see how much ice was uh, how much water was actually yeah within the glaciers and what the so sea level was at that time. With, with these glaciers being sometimes two kilometers thick there's really no way that we could repair the damage uh industrially say you know by blowing water back onto the glacier or some crazy idea like we really actually have to solve the problems that are leaving, leading to the retreat right that would be at least my preferred option if we do not do so much geoengineering but rather solve the problem from the beginning um i mean the the glaciers as i said they react rather slow and um i mean there have been some studies whether they are already at the t at tipping points so points where there is kind of no return but as far as i'm aware of at least the antarctic glaciers are most of them are still somehow stable in the sense that if if climate change is now slowed down or maybe even reversed that the glaciers would stay stable and um, mm -hmm. would also increase again in mass so um, yeah but so um, you say that they react quite slowly but it, I, I guess when you were on Svalbard did you have the opportunity to speak with any older members of the community who maybe could remember uh, in their lifetime, um, some changes. Is there anything along? The, like, did you speak with anyone about about that? Yeah, I mean, I just had to speak to my professor who was doing research for um, for already something like twenty, I think, thirty years or so on on a particular glacier, and and he could report on um, how the where the the calving line was uh, located before and how that retreated. Um, so definitely, you can see it, and um, think. Of course, when we talk about climate change, we always try to look at periods that are something like 30 years, maybe even better, uh, even longer, because we are aware that there are 
um, just a decadal variability that might also obscure certain trends and and lead to to maybe biased um, um, estimates. But still, um, for also for the glaciers on Svalbard, it's clear that all of them are um, on average retreating and also f since longer. So it's it's not only variability, but it's also cl a clear trend. Mm. So climate change is very real for you and the people who have actually been there and, and witnessed these changes. Yeah, I think that's especially that's um, one of the aspects in the Arctic. What uh, what I find so remarkable is that climate change is so well visible there, just because yeah, the the the, the mean temperatures in the Arctic are are um, accelerating twice as much as as the ones in in our latitudes. And here, I think it's sometimes hard to to yeah to see or to understand whether this particular strong storm event or this heat wave was really related to climate change or something else. But if you're in the Arctic, you can. You can just look at the temperature records and you see, okay, there have been two warm temperatures for now more than something like five, ten years, and the sea ice is retreating so clearly, and the glaciers are retreating. So it's really strong signs. Why is that? Why why is the Arctic more sensitive? Um, so there there are a lot of different effects, but I think one that is really easy to grasp and also really dominant is the the um, ice albedo feedback. It's just related to the f fact that uh, ice, uh, white ice, is reflecting a lot of the energy. And if this white ice is now um, retreating, it leaves the, the dark ocean below. And um, this means that if, if there is just sunshine, the energy of the sun is absorbed by the ocean. And that is then heating up, um, what leaves more energy for melting more ice. So it's an, an accelerating um, feedback. Mm -hmm. And that leads to this the stronger um, decrease in um, yeah in in the Arctic sea ice, but and then also in the um, yeah stronger increase in the temperatures there. Um, this is just like one example that is um, quite mm -hmm. remarkable. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of large impact, I guess uh, when glaciers retreat, then that leads to sea sea level rises, but the sea ice uh, melt doesn't lead to sea level rises right or not as dramatically no exactly so uh, if glaciers melt yes then sea level is rising but um the sea ice is in in um is in, in equilibrium with the um, water it's like an ice cube in your water um, glass so it while it is uh, swimming uh, swimming there it is also already pushing the the water a bit away so it's in equilibrium with the surroundings and that means if it melts uh, it won't change the sea level yeah. Okay. I see. So the um. So then I have to ask sort of like a um, a mean question, which is uh. You know, you said fifty percent of the sea ice is is gone. Uh, and so down here we don't really feel that effect, right? So when you're in Germany, you don't realize that you know fifty percent of the sea ice in your day to day life it doesn't really affect you. So what what is the for the average person in, in Berlin who's never going to have the chance to visit um, the North Pole, you know, what what is going to be the impact of the remaining? If if we lost all of it, for example, is is there some picture you can give of what the downstream effects m might be? 
So first of all, this is one reason why we do research, <laughs> because we would like to know exactly the, the, the direct effects for, for our life here. But uh, one thing that is um, more and more clear is that um, it definitely has an impact on our mid-latitude weather. Um, so, for example, maybe you followed the discussion just um, recently, there was um, this um, this example of this really cold weather that I think even led to, to snow in, in Texas and also to quite a lot of snow here in, in Germany. And it was remarkable cold, I would say. And um, there was a lot of discussion whether that was one of those um, yeah, cold outbursts that was related to uh, weakening of the polar vortex. Uh, the polar vortex is um, a, a band of winds that is um, located in the north, uh, close to the North Pole. And um, yeah, some people describe it as it is trapped um, by, the cold air is trapped by, by this band of winds. And um, if now the temperature contrast between the Arctic and the mid-latitude is um, decreasing, what happens if the Arctic is um, yeah, warming more than the lower latitudes, then um, this this um, trap, this fence of of winds um, is getting weaker, and this um, leaves more room for this cold winds uh, to, for example, leave the Arctic and um, yeah, lead to really really cold weather also here. Um, this is the one side. It is also still uh, it is also a, um, current research um, that. Um, or there's also current research on the question whether those heat events or the, the opposite effect are maybe also related to, um, to a weakening of this um, bands of winds. So um, it could be that this uh, yeah, weakening of the contrast between lower latitudes and higher latitudes leads to, um, to a, um, a slower wind, so it leads to a slowdown of the winds. And this leads to um, more... Um, let's say slings or meanders of, of the wind. Um, it's a bit like a river. It's flowing quite straight if you're in, in the Alps, so in the mountains regions, but it takes more and more turns if you're coming closer to, um, to, to, to uh, the seaside where it's really flat. So mm -hmm. when something slows down, when, when, or when um, a fluid flows, uh, slows down, it starts to, to take those turns. And uh, this is happening also with the wind. Um, in in uh, in the um, higher altitudes and um, this meanders uh, that could leave um, more time for the warm and the cold air to move uh, to the north and to the south, and this leads then to this really stable long heat waves and cold um, um, yeah cold outburst here in in Europe, and um, I mean this this kind of um, weather is just not really what is uh, beneficial for either the the agriculture here, but also not for the humans. I think like this heat wave, um, I, I don't remember the, the name but uh, the, the time, but there was one that was particularly strong that led to a lot of uh, deaths as well because mm -hmm. it's, yeah, really stressful. Okay, so, so the effect um, is that you yeah. get longer summers and, and I guess more intense summers and then longer winters as well. Is that the case? Is um, that what you're saying? I wouldn't say that the season is expanding, but um, that we have stable weather. So that we have really 30 degrees um, for more than um, something like 10-15 days. That's just a bit unusual for the weather here, at least in Europe, where you have mm -hmm. this higher sequence of, of good weather, bad weather, good weather, and so on. So a yeah, more rapid change. And this is changing or could change due to the weaker contrast between 
in temperature between the lower and the higher latitude. I guess one of the sad things is as well, so you have this, uh, the, the dynamics are changing and then what's going to happen is you, you might have uh, quite intense cold periods and people will say, oh, look, there's no such thing as global warming. <laughs> it's colder in Texas than it's ever been before. Uh, this must be quite depressing to hear uh, <laughs> when you're working in this field. <laughs> yes, um, but um, I'm pretty sure that that people also that this is just I mean it's just a bad excuse, right? If you understand that that climate is changing, um, then you also see that uh, that a cold change that also cooling at a certain part is is really um, a part of this this whole phenomenon, and um, so. so people willfully <laughs> putting their fi fingers in their ears. But uh, <laughs> yeah. before jumping completely uh, into so the science and, and, and your research, I want to take a step back because uh, I want to ask you, so you were in Svalbard, which is a pretty, pretty wild place. Are the stories true? Do you have to walk around with a rifle? And is it, are there dangers of polar bears? Or uh, do you have to leave your car doors unlocked? <laughs> how, 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 how much fear did you have going around the, 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 the town there? Okay, so yeah, it's true. As um, polar bears are um, a topic that is always around and with you when you're on Svalbard, and I would also recommend everybody to always remember that polar bears are living there. And um, yeah, I mean, in town you're kind of protected by the the local um, police um, people, um, so you don't need to to have a weapon there. But as soon as you leave the town, you're gonna have uh, someone who is taking care of the polar bear protection. And um, we all went through um, some sort of short rifle training to be able to to fulfill this uh, job. And um, we all got a lot of education on how to behave um, when when you're encountering a polar bear and how to best avoid the situation. <laughs> what is, I think, the best measure in polar bear protection, just not meeting them. Um, yeah, but I think all those training also um, helped me just to, to develop um, a good, healthy portion of respect for those animals, mm -hmm. but not necessarily fear. Mm -hmm. So just in case I do encounter a bear, what's, what are the, the, the key uh, messages that I should be absorbing? You should leave. <laughs> this would be the ideal solution. As, okay, so first of all, like it would be good that you recognize the bear from far, far away. So you must be always attentive and need uh, and just use all the options you have with binoculars and so on to check. It's also important, and I think that's also important for a scientist to remember that someone really should have the only duty to do polar bear uh, watch so that you're not thinking okay yeah i could check with the measurements of my of my colleague here while i'm watching or something like that no like it's really important that you're dedicated to this this task and um, it's also quite tiring so we often just um yeah switch then after a while to to make sure that one person is really attentive always and then it's it's working that um, you really recognize them from far far away and then um you just make sure that you leave again. And um, yeah, if that really doesn't work um, and you have to kind of um, let the, the bear approach, um, I would always try to scare them away um, mm -hmm. by screaming, making a lot of noise. Um, and um, like, for example, if you're on Svalbard, then you might have a scooter. That's great. So first, because you can leave with the scooter, but scooter is also really, really noisy. So this is also a good thing to scare the bear away. 
and yeah and and i mean in the ultimate energy you have this like you have a signal um pistol and so that makes a lot of noise as well mm-hmm. yeah and then only for but the last it, but in lesson. general do they do the bears try to avo- avoid humans and sort of random encounters or or do they sort of pick up the smell of, of humans and then become curious what's the what are they yeah. like what are their personalities like? <laughs> i think that's the thing that, that i learned is that no bear is like the other and it's not possible to predict the behavior of a bear and mm. i guess also you shouldn't try to <laughs> at least not if you're as like i, I mean there, there are probably a few few people on svalbard who are really really experienced in this and they might have some comp content uh, some some abilities to really read them a bit but i wouldn't dare to to really do that um but i can just tell you what i experienced uh, while i was um now on on the ship because i think on the ship the situation is a bit easier you're really in safety and you can observe them and what we have seen are bears that just passed by far far away and didn't care at all um even though we were i mean the ship is loud it's big it's it's smelly so they definitely recognized us but they didn't mind and they just uh, walked uh, past and then others were really curious um some of them came closer to the ship or they checked out our measurement equipment and um yeah they, sometimes they even kind of interacted with us so they came they they screamed and um and after a while they lost interest and and went away so there are also some some curious bears, I would say, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you shouldn't be in the way for them. One thing I, I re- was really curious about is, you know, you, you hear about a sea ice retreat, and then there's that classic image of the starving polar bear that's being affected by, you know, its home being taken away. The polar bears that you saw out on the ice, did they look healthy, or, or was it clear that uh, they had been impacted um, by the change in their environment? Yeah, I'm not sure they have a like a representative subsample to to answer this question. Um, also, I'm not a biologist, so I'm not sure whether I can judge on that either. But um, from just my my first impression was that uh, they all looked normal. Um, <laughs> but I think it was also a good um, season for them. So um, there there was still a lot of sea ice. They could go hunt. Um, so that was not such i think not so such a big as like um yeah problem for them at that point in time but um of course this is just like um yeah one one period in time and i don't know how they look like at the um at the end of the of the um or in the springtime right so when mm-hmm. um yeah so maybe this is a good opportunity to jump into the ship. So, so, so how did you go from this land-based work uh, in Svalbard? Were you also in Greenland at some point or just Svalbard? I've no, just, just uh, yeah, Greenland I've only seen by ship. <laughs> so, so how did you get involved with Mosaic and, and what is it? Could you give some like brief overview of, of, of what the expedition was? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think how I got involved is that, um, I started to to work at the Alfred Wegener Institute, who is um, the main organizer of, of Mosaic. And um, related to that, I joined um, the their, um, another Polarstein crew, so also already ship-based work. And then I started my PhD on, on sea ice, and then it was um, there was the option to to also join this um, big big expedition. And um, yeah, Mosaic is. I would say a really um, uh, 
a really uh, huge international and also um, quite uh, ambitious uh, science project. Um, it was uh, planned as a one-year measurement campaign in the Arctic sea ice. And um, in, in contrast to many other expeditions, it was clear that the, the measurement platform that was then the Icebreaker Polarstern shouldn't move um, on its own, but uh, should just uh, yeah let itself freeze into the ice and then move with the ice. Um, just to, to why was that? Uh, when? No, ah, why, why? Why was that? Why? <laughs> why do you want to stay embedded? Yeah, because we want to um, we want to do the same measurements and we want to do um, the measurements at the same ice. So we want to follow the ice and its its seasonal cycle. And if we move the whole time with the ship, we would encounter ice that has a different um, history. And but if we stay with the same ice, we can observe it from yeah more or less its freezing um, to its melting. And that was the big advantage. And also, um, this gave us the opportunity to also um, measure during the Arctic um, night, what is um, really special, before most of the campaigns were taking place in summer, just because then the, the, the Arctic is more accessible. Um, and uh, this time we decided to yeah to stay in the Arctic. So um, the ship went there in September and uh, let itself yeah freeze in, and um, then it traveled with the ice um, uh, for uh, about a year from the the Siberian Arctic more or less to um, yeah to Fram Strait, what is uh, the ocean passage between Svalbard and Greenland. So how close did it get to the North Pole then? <laughs> oh, how, okay. How close um, to Santa? <laughs> Good question. Oh, it was a bit, bit away. I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know what? Like they, um, so the 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 ship followed the ice flow, um, yeah, until it actually broke um, uh, up and uh, was melting, and then they returned uh, to the to the Central Arctic, and uh, this time, so that was then in. I think September 2020, a year later, they uh, passed over the North Pole. So they have been okay. at the North Pole. <laughs> but, okay, so so the, the picture is you have this gigantic ship, an icebreaker, that in before everything freezes over completely, you break through the ice and you find a location and you embed in a gigantic piece of ice. <laughs> and, and then you unload equipment, all your science equipment, and, and you do months of uh, measurements out on the ice essentially uh, is the picture did you did you you didn't sail in with the ship right you you flew in or how did you get to the ship <laughs> yeah so personally i i didn't but of course other scientists did so uh, they went along with the ship um in in september and then the the exchange was um organized um yeah quite uh, differently for the different times so uh there um uh, Russian icebreakers actually came to Polarstern and exchanged the people. Um, and uh, my exchange uh, was planned by airplane. So they, they wanted to, to land on the ice. But unfortunately, uh, this was not possible due to then the, the outbreak of the pandemic because we planned to fly from uh, Svalbard, what wasn't open for, um, for visitors at, at that time uh, yeah, due to the pandemic. And then we had to change plans. And in the end, um, we were brought to Svalbard uh, by two other uh, ships. And then uh, Polash then came out of the ice for a short moment, picked us up and returned with us to the same ice again. So there was a short break, but uh, we so returned the, to the same um, ice. So the other boats 
couldn't make it through the ice to you? Or is that the reason why you had to come out? Exactly. Or the Polish exactly. Exactly. Because Polarstern was the only uh, available icebreaker at the time that um, yeah, could do the journey. So we had to wait outside of the ice. I see. When, when you're traveling through the ice, do you hear the sound of the ice on the hull and, and feel sort of the pressure? Also, when you're embedded, is, is that sort of a dynamic thing that uh, you can sort of sense every day in your day, day life? Or? Yes, absolutely. So breaking through the ice with the ship is super impressive. Uh, it's loud and uh, sometimes um, we get stuck and then we have to back up with the ship and go again. So we ram our way through the ice. And this is really yeah, loud and also with uh, some some um, acceleration. So you can feel it. And um, I was always um, so impressed to to do sports in the ship while this happened because it is located at the at the front of the ship and uh, in the deeper parts. So you're basically exactly where the ice is breaking and uh, you can hear it. And it's um, yeah, it's really, really impressive. And um, you can also feel how the ship is then moving um, when when some of the ice flows are um, rising, a gap, uh, rising up again and then they push the ship a bit. So it starts to move. And um, yeah, so uh, it's sometimes a bit difficult to to uh, fall asleep when so much is going on then. <laughs> but so in the night times when, when you're not sailing, but you're in location, do you hear sort of the creaking and groaning of the metal or what's that like? Um, yeah, I think when we were uh, then f frozen up in the ice, um, then you didn't hear so much the ice working against the ship, but you could hear the ice um, working just um, when there was some deformation. So so ice breaking going on uh, somewhere else. So when ice flows move towards each other and just pushing themselves up or below the other ice flows. And so you could observe that when you were outside and um, yeah, just paying really attention to it. So this is also impressive sounds. So the, the ice is quite uh, dynamic, right, outside the boat. Did you, did you have people who would put down some equipment and then come back the next day and it's gone? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did happen. I mean, um, it, the, the interesting thing with the ice dynamics is that it is stable the whole time and then out of the nothing, a lot is going on. So you, it's really difficult to plan with this. And, um, but we had occasions where, where some of our power lines were eaten by forming ice ridges or a hut was just smashed. And, and then the opposite sometimes happens so that the ice moves apart and then you have out of the nothing, you have a gap and then you mm -hmm. need to bridge that somehow. And, um, so we had a lot of interaction of ice dynamics with, um, logistical, um, yeah, equipment and, so how do you how do you pick a spot like how do you know that there's not going to be some huge carving event and then you, your boat gets swallowed up by you know, <laughs> how, how do they do that uh location picking yeah yeah so um, i mean the polashton itself wasn't in danger because the sea ice is um so we weren't we weren't close to glaciers where, where carving could be a problem so but the sea ice itself oh, it's, it's thin like, enough yeah the th exactly it's thin enough it's it's something like this yeah let's say one to three meters so mm -hmm. it's it's not um, something that is dangerous for the ship. Um, but yeah, in respect to your other question about um, the location picking, uh, there was um, a lot of, I would say, um, help from space because um, they checked out the area before with satellites and looked at the, the ice flows that were around. And then also a lot of experience. Um, there were the, um, so of course there were 
the CIS experts out there with together with the captain. And then also we got a lot of help from the Russians that also have a lot of experience in, in setting up such camps. And all of them um, decided uh, which flows would be worth to check out. And then people went on the ice and checked how thick the ice was. Sometimes they also tried it with the ship. So they, they went into the ice and if they didn't get stuck, then... Uh, this was not a good flow. So, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> um, so there were also some, some tests like this. Um, yeah. When you say uh, you check from a space that they were around, you mean, so you were looking for some ice that was around the previous year uh, so that it was thick enough or that's what you mean, right? Yeah, or... exactly. So they were looking for a, a stable ground um, and this was, of course, then related to the ice thickness and um, they picked ice that um, was um, just um, so you can you can sometimes tell from the structure so if it's really rough and uh, then you can say that this ice is probably thicker and uh, this is um, a property that you can see um, with satellites so how rough the ice is and um, so they found some some ice flows that were just um, rougher than the surroundings and from those they could say okay this is most likely more stable and uh, this they picked as the let's say let's the base camp for it, the, the measurement site but then of course they also wanted to survey the thinner ice and um, as the ice grew thicker they put more and more instruments also on this uh, thinner part mm -hmm. so in terms of so so satellites can go over and get a rough idea of the thickness of the ice so what can you get from being there on location so so what sort of measurements can you make that just satellites can't touch um so it's a lot about the the detailed processes so the satellites um can give us yeah something like the, the extent of the ice so the question whether there is ice or not and they might also be able to give us a rough idea how thick the ice is but uh, they are not really able to resolve the the exact um structure of the ice something for example how um how um, what the topography is like and the topography is then important to tell whether melt ponds are going to form so uh, little little ponds where the melt water is, is accumulating and in which then a lot of um, of um, uh, uh, eco uh, a lot of um, just like a biota is living and those are all um, aspects that uh, the satellites can't see um, also something like um, for example how is the the um, the temperature um, distribution in the ice or uh, yeah, what kind of organisms are living in the ice and uh, what's the salinity of the whole ice pack. That's something you can't tell from, from measurements uh, from satellites. Of course, we all try to, um, to push that as far as possible because satellites are so much more available than those measurement campaigns. And I think I'm a big um, fan of satellites because uh, they yeah, give a lot of information also for, for uh, give me a lot of information for my research. Um, but uh, there are still um, aspects um, where we also just need ground truth to validate what we see from the satellites. And um, the, the mosaic campaign was a really special occasion where we put a lot of the measurements that we have normally on satellites on the ground to check um, whether this is actually so whether we actually interpret the, the signals completely correctly. Huh. That's a component I'd not thought of. So you're you're doing a double check on on the oh, okay. So in terms of your own research, then what measurements were you taking? I looked especially at ice thickness uh, measurements. Uh, so we we want to know how the ice 
thickness um, is changing. And um, for this, um, we have a, a set of instruments. Uh, one is, for example, um, a, um, an electromagnetic device that is flown under a helicopter. So this device works a bit like um, a metal detector. So it senses the the strong uh, difference in conductivity between the, the seawater that is really conductive and the, the um, sea ice that is not so conductive. And um, combining this 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 um, this, this um, information with um, the distance to the upper part of the ice gives us the ice thickness. So we, we know then how far away the uh, the upper part of the ice is and then from the metal detector system we know how far away the lower part of the ice is because okay. then with this we detect the ice ocean interface. Mm-hmm. And uh, this gives us yeah the thickness and um, we were flying this instrument um, with the helicopter so we can get a, a large scale um, impact uh, impression of the thickness. And uh, the same device has a little sister that we can also tow behind us uh, on a sledge. And uh, we did this then uh, by just walking around to get a higher, um, uh, just to get an idea how the ice in, our, in close proximity was. And again, there is, well, it's important to get some ground truth. And that's why also we, we drilled a lot of holes and just measured the thickness. Mm-hmm. That is then like the, the most reliable, but of course it takes a lot of time and you cannot just uh, drill holes everywhere. And so you're also cross-checking those three different uh, yeah. modes of getting. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, how many ice? Um, how many drilling samples did you take? And do you, is it a, a big electric thing or a big? <laughs> how's yeah. it powered? I guess you don't have a screw. No. Right? Oh, we also had a ha- we have a hand uh, a hand screw as well, but we have uh, just electrical ones. We actually use uh, the the normal um, uh, the normal drills that you could also use for um, for your home. But we have a lot of um, extra batteries because, of course, the batteries die really, really fast. Yeah, and then we have like we, we have drill um, extensions, and we they are normally a meter long, and then we extend them when the ice is thicker, and then we extend, extend, extend. And I think the the thickest hole, uh, the, the like the longest uh, uh, hole that I drilled was something like seven meters. Uh, Okay. Long. So with with a hand drill that yeah. I could buy yeah. at Bunnings or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, one thing that I'm curious about, it, I hadn't really thought of too much, but I'm curious about is, um, do, do, do your electrical, does your mobile phone doesn't work out there, right? Because there's no signal, but other electrical equipment also, it's cold, right? So do you have to warm the batteries on your body and then put them in the drill or what are the complications there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so batteries is, is always something that you need to, yeah keep warm as as good as possible and a good solution is often just to wear it close to you and then we bring a lot of them um to make sure that it stays warm and then also like at least on mosaic we had so much um equipment that we could also set up some some hubs um where we we had temperatures at least something around zero then um so then the equipment there is uh, yeah uh, for sure a bit um better um secured and and easier to handle and um yeah but for everything else i mean um we yeah we do not need so much more i would say we need the drills yes and and some we also have some more for example the the remote sensing instruments that i was just talking about with the satellite comparison um they have uh, well isolated uh, batteries and then we had the power lines on the flow so we actually had power from from the ship and then of course this was then working also in the cold 
So how many, how far out from the ship were you taking uh, samples? I, I'm asking because I'm wondering how representative your little plot was of what's <laughs> going on across the entire. Um... Yeah. Um, so of course the, the the central observatory. So the the really the main part where most of the instruments were. That was only something like uh, 500 to maybe um, 3,000 meters away from the ship. But um, so five, uh, so something like half a kilometer to three kilometers. But um, what is also really special about Mosaic is that we set up um, a lot of instruments in the wider surroundings of the ship, something like um, satellites as well, <laughs> in that sense, so that uh, they were um, up to a distance of, I think, 50 kilometers. We had several stations where, um, where there were only autonomous um, buoys, to, uh, autonomous um, measurement devices deployed. So they, we, we put some, some instruments on the ice that were measuring um, without any um, need to, to just uh, to take the measurements. And they sent the data via a satellite um, uh, to, to us. And uh, this helps us now to, to get like um, an idea how representative the measurements at the central observatory were for the wider surroundings. And then in the last instance, of course, we can compare those measurements to the satellites. And then with this, we can even extend our radius. I, I, I want to jump into um, what your actual results were in a second, but I want to uh, first ask, you know, you mentioned before that uh, when you're on Svalbard, you had to do special training with a rifle in case you came across a bear, but here you're flying around in helicopters. Is there any special training there or is you, <laughs> <Yes>. you just? <laughs> no, no, no. Of course. I mean, uh, we were also trained there from the pilots to, um, to do uh, how to actually behave around a helicopter because it's also dangerous, right? Um, but I, I, I even was so lucky and I'm not sure whether I was lucky, but I also did a training how to escape from a helicopter that is more or less flooded with water. So it's, <laughs> it's I, I don't know, but it's a common thing that helicopters uh, turn around. Yeah, I mean, like, so you're, you're asking about trainings about helicopters <laughs> and um, one thing that could happen, I mean, it never happened, and I hope that's going to be the case forever, but uh, that, that the helicopter is just, um, um, just like, broken and then it's just, um, uh, we, there's an accident, right? And, and we fall into the water with the helicopter. Mm. And um, I, I also got a training how to escape from a helicopter that is slowly going under the water and drowning more or less what and was that like <laughs> Did, were you put upside down as well yes. and <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah because that's happened that's often what happens with helicopters right they turn upside down because they're, mm. they're so top heavy um i see oh because the engine's yeah. at the top right yeah because the engine's at the top exactly so they often turn around yeah and um, there are facilities that do exactly this they, they put you in something like a helicopter dummy and um push you into a, a swimming pool and and then you you learn how to escape, and um, and so I was actually well prepared, I would say, for <laughs> any occasion that could happen. Um, but of course, nothing happened. And we're really also our equipment is, is really good. So we have this survival suits always wearing, and um, um, and as I said, uh, good instructions how to behave in which occasion, and um, yeah, so. 
so our, in our, your our daily job you wear survival suits you learn how to shoot rifles <laughs> and you do safety training for if your helicopter crashes <laughs> science. Yeah. yeah i didn't expect that when i started to do science that this this would be in yeah part of it so in terms of the measurements you were doing uh what were you able to find out, uh, both yourself and also more broadly with the expedition? What, what mm. sort of things could we learn? So I, I, I have to disappoint you, but Mosaic was such a big expedition that we have so much data that we haven't really came to the point that we can draw really so so um, nice conclusions yet. So mm. this is a process that is probably, so probably, yeah, keep us busy for the next 10 years. Um, but uh, what we already found out is, for example, where the ice came from where that we worked on. So we looked at the history of the ice and, um, and could locate its most likely um, formation um, place. And what was interesting is that that ice formed in a really, um, really shallow area of the Siberian seas. So um, where the ice formed, the water depth was probably, yeah, in the meter range and that um, led to a lot of sediments that we could find on the floor so rocks and and little pieces of animals and, and just sand and um, this is happening because um, when the water is really shallow and there's a lot of wind action going on a lot of sediment is still in the water when the water starts to freeze and um, also, a different aspect is that sometimes um, the ice is growing all the way to the bottom and picks up um, some rocks there. So we had we found actually a lot of rocks then on the floor when we were um, when when the ice started to melt, and that's a really strange situation if you're walking on on ice and you know below you there is not solid ground but there is something like four thousand meters of water, but you find actual rocks in the ice. That was really um, interesting. And that also pointed out uh, that this ice is a really important um, transport medium for those rocks and um, when this and, and this organic material. And um, this when the ice melts, this is then, of course, dropping to the, uh, to the seafloor and uh, provides um, another source for nutrients for, for the animals living there. And if you cut down now this transport route, for example, mm -hmm. because the sea ice is melting earlier, you're not going to have this, um, this, yeah, uh, this flow of, of uh, this, uh, yeah, this transport of, of, of material any longer. And those are these, those aspects where I think we have not yet understood the whole system well enough to really foresee all the consequences, because maybe those organisms are then somehow important for another aspect of the of the ecosystem. And it might have a really huge effect if they're not getting their nutrients any longer. I guess the image that I had had uh, was really quite wrong. I had this image where, okay, there's polar bears that you can see, and I was imagining seals. But other than that, I was imagining it uh, to be sort of like a desert. Mm -hmm. But actually, it sounds like there's quite a bit of life under or in the, in the ice itself. What what else was there? In what was nice to see out on the ice uh, <laughs> when you were out there? Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, exactly. So about the life, um, for sure, there's a lot of um, algae um, productivity actually in the ice and right below the ice, and um, there is uh, 
actually a lot of research going on now what's going to happen with this algae um, because you can imagine that when the ice gets thinner and if there's when there's less ice then um, there's more light and this normally leads first to an increase in, in, bi in bioproduction but then on the other side also the habitat of this the species are more or less gone when there is no ice any longer what could also reduce then the um the, the availability of of those uh, or the just the growth and um, the productivity of the of those um, species and uh, so one of the big questions uh, that are not yet clear is whether actually the arctic is uh, gonna develop into a a source or a sink for for carbon dioxide because if you have then out of the nothing such a big change in in um yeah this this biota that is normally consuming co2 then this could either lead to more or to, to less co2 so this is still um, also quite an interesting ongoing question and I, I really hope that mosaic is also going to provide answers to that question but you were asking what else was nice on the ice um <laughs> yeah in terms so, of your daily life out there yes. as well <laughs> i think for me it's really the colors so um of course polar bears are super exciting but um i was in the ice when uh, when there were melt ponds around so when the ice was starting to melt and melt ponds are like the have the same color like the, the Caribbean seas. So it's completely turquoise. And you, you see this white ice and then you see this, uh, this white ice and then you see around the, the turquoise melt ponds. And this is so beautiful. It's a bit like I think others when they see maybe, um, yeah, just the beach and, and the, the ocean. And um, then you might have really interesting clouds above you as well. And uh, all those different types of blue and white uh, is just like really, really beautiful. And, and when then there was sunshine, everything was just like shiny. And um, yeah, that was always really, really special for me. And then, of course, um, as you said, the ice is really dynamic and ice, the, the properties are the, are the thickness is changing so when there was a deformation event and one of those ridges were just increasing that was also really impressive because you know that there was there must be so much force to push this these really really thick ice on top of each other and yeah that was also absolutely um yeah just astonishing to watch and, and impressive did you have a regular day night cycle how how were the days like in terms of length yeah, for me, I just had sunlight. I mm -hmm. did not have a single sunset for something like uh, two and a half, three months. So you probably didn't see the northern lights or anything like this? <laughs> not this time, but I've seen them while I was on Svalbard. And this is also really impressive. Absolutely. <laughs> like this green, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> Did you when you so when you were talking about uh, finding pebbles and stones and shells, yeah. when you would take an ice core, were they all the way through the ice core or just on sort of surface layers? That's a good question, but I, I don't think they were in all the different layers, um, but uh, they were sometimes also, um, so not only at the surface, because uh, we only found them when the ice was starting to melt. So they were for sure a bit within the ice and then they started to melt out more or less. Mm -hmm. What about uh, sea life? Were you able to see whales or was there anything interesting like that that was uh, an occurrence? Yeah, we saw seals and then um, I think on the way back we saw some orcas, but we didn't see them in the ice. So um, from this perspective, I was a bit unlucky. I think others have seen more 
um, more also more sea life. But also some found some fish. We saw a lot of fish. Um, there's some fish that lives just exactly below the ice surface. And if uh, polarized and was breaking through the ice, the, the ice flows sometimes tipped over and then sometimes there was a fish uh, still on top. <laughs> there was, yeah, I, oh, I'm probably guessing pretty they're surprised. Living off the <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, okay, so one thing I'm also curious about is, so as I said uh, before, I'm imagining that uh, you're on the boat, you're there with very interesting people, lots of scientists, ecologists, uh, people from all different uh, fields. For them, what what's the mood like? Because in some sense, it's kind of sad that you're going and doing some, you're studying an environment that's being destroyed. So is the feeling that this is sort of the last chance we have to take these measurements and this is just for posterity's sake? Or what's the mood like uh, around this sort of discussion on the boat? Um, on the boat, there are um, a lot of really young people. Um, so I think my age, we have not yet seen this dramatic decrease with our own eyes. While a lot of the more experienced senior scientists can report from completely different conditions when they start to research. And I think to feel this, this really sad feelings, um, you might need this life experience to, to have seen it with your own eyes. Of course, we know that this is going on, but, um, when we're on the, I think when I was at least there, I've, in the first place, I was just fascinated by, by the beautiful nature around me and by the fact that I was there. And I think a lot of us are feeling the same. So we're not so, um, I wouldn't say that the mood was bad in this respect. It's more that we're, we feel a bit of a rush. So we are like, okay, we need to, to measure as much as possible to, to understand the system as soon as possible so that we still have a chance to, to maybe preserve some some of it, um, so it's it's more this um, this energetic um, will to to put all your energy into this project so that we still have a chance to yeah to also kind of uh, to initiate political decisions to um, to change something. Mm-hmm. Has pollution had an impact so far already, or? You know what, what? What's what's the long-term strategy and, and goal, or what? What? What's what? What do you hope to achieve, uh, personally, and also in terms of the organization? I guess. Uh, um, I think that this is this is probably really really a, a difficult topic because um, a lot of scientists have the impression that the results and their their um, model results and, and prediction are actually pretty clear um, how this is going, but still the the political will to change something is quite reluctant and rather slow. So a lot of politicians acknowledge that um, that there are large ongoing changes, yeah, especially visible in the Arctic, but. Um, I wouldn't say that there is uh, that there has been so much action really taken to to tackle this issue, especially not um, at the speed that we actually need to to preserve this. So this is really a bit depressive. Um, personally, I think that my my talents are more in in analyzing and understanding this 
um, this this concept of climate change in the Arctic and I can present the results. However, really taking the right actions for it is is not really what what I can can do. So I, I hope that just explaining my results well enough that others are understanding it will help that uh, there's, of course, also the, the political will to change it. Mm. Um, why, why do you think so on some issues, like ozone depletion or, or whaling, we seem to have been able to get our act together, but then there's issues like global warming. And then you've seen in different countries with the COVID response, for example, in China and Australia, they seemed at least uh, from what I can tell to do slightly better than the States, let's say. Uh, why is it that we're, we're so incapable in, in, in this case to, to act? Why, why don't we do? <laughs> why, why isn't that this something that we can sort of act as a unified uh, world on? If I knew that answer, then <laughs> I would definitely <laughs> maybe change my profession and uh, and start to be a politician. Um, I don't know. I really don't know why it is so hard um, to take action on that. And this, I think one aspect is um, maybe that the consequences are the, the really bad consequences are so far away, so that you that you're just um, rather um, enjoying the 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 maybe the bad as the or you're enjoying your life now without really considering what's going on in the future even though i know for for example for the ozone depletion um that it was kind of similar so of course the ozone hole was increasing also at that time and that was changing um some that was already affecting life uh, people's life but um uh, also, the, the big consequences lie in the future there. So, but I think that is one aspect of, of climate change that makes it so difficult for people to really understand this, the, the severeness of the situation um, to then take actions. And yeah, I think just four, four years of legislation period for politicians is just not long enough to, mm. to really... Um, to yeah, to propose a change there so it's just so much short time thinking and um that's at least one of the reasons that i see um and for all the others yeah maybe <laughs> yeah so what do the models say what what's what's the most likely outcome uh, if nothing is done so for the sea ice extent, um, the models suggest that the, the that in summer we're gonna have this um, yeah somehow ice-free Arctic Ocean, so this um, something like fifteen percent concentration um, uh, by yeah two thousand um, fifty sixty maybe seventy, so something that we're gonna witness. <laughs> okay, but then in the winter there'll still be some coverage, but it will be thinner um, and maybe won't support polar bears and seals uh in the same way that it does currently yeah, exactly example. so in the summer in the, in the winter there's gonna be sea ice because um the the sea ice is also refreezing faster if um if there is if, if it's thinner just because uh thin ice is uh, less isolating the the um the warm ocean um uh from the the cold atmosphere so when the ice is th thinner it also grows faster mm -hmm. um but uh, so there's also got, always going to be sea ice in the, in the winter. And um, 
Yeah, but of course, there are a lot of different consequences then for the for the ecosystem in the Arctic when there is no sea ice in, in, in summer. For example, of course, of polar bears and um, but also the all the um, smaller organisms that mm -hmm. are living there, like the, the algae. Mm -hmm. And I guess whatever eats the algae, krill or whatever. Okay, so, so it, that doesn't sound super positive. Are there, if the politicians don't act, are there engineering solutions? Like, can we work with the dynamics of the ice flow to help preserve it or, or, or there some mechanisms at play where we could somehow, uh, you know, uh, generate ice? Uh, are there any um, discussions along these lines or is it all? Yeah, they are. They uh, are. I mean, it's, it's, and I think it's good because we're researchers. We, we need to f test all the options that we have, right? So um, there, there are studies that try to analyze this. There has been one, for example, to put wind turbines on sea ice to pump up water because then this water would quickly refreeze. But what they also could show in the study is that uh, there is um, almost no effect or no positive effect on the mid-latitude weather. So it's mm -hmm. it's maybe only it's it's just changing a, a small bit and a small part of of um, of this whole system. And I think mm -hmm. that's the whole issue with those all those geoengineering solutions that um, we do not understand the system so well that we can really tell uh, what the measures that we're taking are um, changing. Mm -hmm. So. Um, of course, I think there are some where a lot of a lot of studies have been done on, but they're not so much related to this Arctic sea ice, but more to the general CO2 concentration in, in the atmosphere. Or, for example, the solar radiation, the solar incoming radiation. Um, and, and, and they might work. But for everything that I've seen so far um, related to the Arctic, it's just not really um, feasible because either it's not well understood whether this really has a, a long-term large-scale effect or just because the Arctic is super inaccessible. Um, so bringing there a lot of infrastructure to, to kind of improve the situation would probably mm -hmm. harm it at the same time. In terms of the, uh, that one expedition, then do you have to be quite careful in terms of your impact on the, did, I'm guessing you took all your rubbish back out. Yeah, no, definitely. Exactly. So there needs also be a, an assessment on, on our impact. And, um, uh, we, we actually talk a lot about it, especially now. And I think the next expedition in this size is gonna, um, yeah, have far more sustainable solutions also for measurement equipment, um, on board. And I'm really happy about this. Um, so far, I think the assessments in general is, is that the um, overall impact of the research is, is better or is, is of course, um, more beneficial than the, um, than the impact that you're leaving when you're, when you're measuring. But yeah, there is some, I mean, as there only all the, on the, uh, all the, um, uh, fuel that we're burning to get there is, is already quite a lot of uh, CO2. Mm -hmm. So if what's the best case scenario? So, so if, if uh, politicians and, and uh, nations agree to, to some path forward, what could happen? What, what could we do at this point? Um, we personally are... No, I mean, uh, generally, globally, what could be done uh, 
are we, are we at a point uh, where there's no return? Uh, can we get back into a, a place so we have full coverage over winter and, and historic coverage over summer? Um, or, or are we at a position now where we've gone too far and we've gone beyond some point? Yeah, um, no, I think that, um, of course, there, there are strong feedback uh, mechanisms, as I explained with the albedo feedback, that could even reduce sea ice when when uh, the uh, when the when the warmings is is when the warming uh, stops but um in general um we we could also see in the past that it was always um that there have been uh, periods in in the in the long term climate past of the earth where there has been such a um low sea ice extent and that recovered again mm-hmm. so if conditions change um at least now I would be positive that there's also a recovery of the sea ice, um, especially at that point now, because it's not yet completely gone. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so I think if, if we're able to yeah follow maybe the one in, uh, 1.5 degree um, um, aim, then uh, this would definitely um, yeah still, I think, uh, conserve uh, the chance that, that the sea ice is extent is also there in, in, in summer, at least to a minimum extent that would support then the survival of polar bears and, and other um, animals living in the Arctic. So what's your next mission? What's, the, what's on your cards uh, for now, if, <laughs> if all goes to plan? <laughs> okay, um, I think my aim is to to contribute a bit in the understanding of how all those sea ice uh, deformation processes so the ridging of the ice and the thickness change with it um, work because this is still an aspect that is a bit missing in the models and um, i would really like to yeah improve this and with this i hope that we get better model simulations that tell us how sea ice um, is actually changing in the next yeah, 10, 20, 50 years. And I hope that if a lot of my colleagues and me work together on this, that we get so convincing results that uh, politicians are going to take action on, on this topic. And in the meanwhile, I try to convince everybody that the Arctic is really a place that is worth to save and um, that then they can also support the decisions of the politicians that are hopefully then saving the Arctic as the ecosystem and climate system as, as we know it now. I think that's a, a nice place to wrap up, Luisa. Uh, yes. So thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> um, that was really... Sorry? I was really cool to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks for all your questions. <laughs> no, I had a lot of fun. Can I ask some more questions, though, that are sort of just not related? Yeah. Or weirdly related. So one thing I, I think you have some experience on that most people don't have experience on is you've now spent how long in Arctic territories in, in your life? I think I spent something like a year in total really doing field work in, in, in Svalbard or on a ship. So the curious question I have is, do you think we're going to have a Mars colony in 50 years? Because, you know, (laughs) when you're on the boat, I imagine they're bringing in food for you or or you have stores, but I'm imagining you're not producing your own potatoes on the ship. So what what do you, what's your bet on uh, a Mars colony succeeding in the next 50 years? Having having (laughs) lived uh, in... 
you know, these extreme situations for a year of your life? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, I witnessed that a lot is possible um, with, um, yeah, with living in remote places and um, having in mind that an expedition as we did it now was already possible a hundred years ago because there has been this um, famous Fram expedition. I could actually imagine that we can do this with the Mars, uh, with the Mars colony, just because we've done something like music a hundred years ago. So why not um, having the option to, yeah, maybe having a Mars colony in 50 years as on, well. On Svalbard, do they produce their own food? No. No, they don't. <laughs> N none at all. No. They don't have any greenhouses? No. Really? Okay, I didn't know that. So they import everything? Yes. <laughs> at least I, I haven't seen anything. I mean, maybe they try a bit, but there's... Oh, yeah, there's one project. You know, there's this one little, small, super tiny greenhouse project where they do this. Uh, but it's it's really small. And they, they do the same in Antarctica. There are also tomatoes growing in Antarctica. But, I mean, a super, really, really small... Um, numbers right so it's not that this is really meant for um yeah are you also uh interested in going down uh, to the south pole oh yeah i would love to <laughs> i guess that's very different research there uh though it's not sea ice well there is sea ice there oh. as well but yeah exactly sea ice is, is really um the connecting element there so um this could be definitely a reason to go there um, yeah, but everything is a bit different there, so it would be really interesting to compare it. Do they have stations out on the sea ice there, though? I thought all the base camps were sort of inland above. Uh... Yeah, they're mo yeah, exactly. They're mostly on the, on the shelf ice, so this is a floating huge glacier, if you oh, want so. Okay. So, okay, your, your bet is that we will have a colony on Mars you reckon it's going to be that's where your bet is is, is. yeah yeah i mean like probably just a, a few explorers like like those like Friedhof jansen did the the drift experiment with a few people um uh, back then in in 1890s or so so i think something that like that could be possible for the for the mice as well because humans are crazy <laughs> so, <laughs> so they really and they're so curious they really want to do this so <laughs> That's brilliant. I like it. I, I like that you've been positive on that uh, side of things. I, I wanted to ask uh, more about uh, some of the outcomes of your research, but I realize that you're um, going through the data, so it makes it a little bit difficult to give conclusions uh, at this point, unfortunately. But it's, it seems like, uh, I mean, you're, you're definitely a cooler researcher than me. I've never done helicopter training. I've never... <laughs> you know, like, I, I did not... I, I did not aim at that at all. It was more that I, I think I had to um, I had to somehow cope with it because it's also quite frightening. I mean, it's not that I that I decided I want to become an adventurer or something like that. I, I I'm more a researcher, and I really like if I can control my my model simulations in my computer, whatever, and then. Somebody says, okay, but if you want to in kind of experience this really cool environment out there, and I really want that, then you also need to learn how to shoot and you need to learn how to get out of a flooded helicopter. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> was, there, was there any other uh, crazy training you had to do? Or was mainly restricted to that? 
um, those two, but as a lot of my colleagues had to go um, through a full training of like a seaman training. Mm -hmm. So they learned how to firefight in a ship. Okay. And um, how to um, also how to use you know those all those rescue equipment um, the the islands the floating islands because it's uh, it seems to be a diff bit difficult to handle them so they also learned how to use them and um, yeah just like I think on Svalbard they also do a lot of avalanche rescue training that's also important or how to um, how to get out of a um, a crevasse of a glacier. Um, yeah, so there is more, but um, yeah. Did you do a lot of hiking across Svalbard as well? I mean, did you go? Yes. That must, must have been really nice. Did you sleep out also uh, in huts and this sort of thing, or were you mainly restricted to the town? Um, we did one overnight trip oh. um, because it's not so easy to get access to the cabins if you're not in Norwegian. <laughs> but. Um, uh, but yeah, once we did it, and um, yeah, all the other ones were were just uh, day trips from from the town. But I mean, the town is super small, so it's really not difficult to to leave it and uh, already feel really really remote. <laughs> so I would say after something like probably one to two hours of hike, your mobile reception is gone, and then you're kind of. On, on your, your own, own right and then <laughs> you said you, that you'd get around on a scooter but i didn't i didn't realize there were roads everywhere uh to get around on in Svabin. ah but for the scooters you don't need roads i mean oh scooters we we're talking about snow scooters ah uh, okay so like a bob <laughs> sorry uh, tobog uh, okay yeah uh snowmobiles snow yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was losing my english i always lose my english in these discussions i don't know what it is but um <laughs> Okay, so you're also trained up on those, but the, <laughs> um, I guess that those are not too difficult uh, to drive. But um, yeah, I, I've always wanted to get to Svalbard. Did you get to see the seed bank? The seed bank, yes. Um, I walked past it. Yeah, yeah, but it's really restricted. So what is kind of logical? So um, we we passed by it with uh, with the bus and then walked around it. But um, yeah, it's it's locked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I could tell, <laughs> I mean that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, they. Uh, it's not like such a yeah good tourist attraction. Whatever you know, what it's there and and but. What about life on the boat? So you said there was um, like a sport hall or something. Is there? How how big is this? How many people were there? So uh, people-wise, uh, Polarstein has a hundred uh, uh, capacity for a hundred people, mm -hmm. and then um, so fifty are from the crew and fifty are from the science party, mm -hmm. and yeah, there is a little sports gym. There's a gym. There is even a little little uh, swimming pool. So um, you can probably do something like three um, three times. I don't know what's that in English, but you can swim three times more or less, and then you're on the other side. But yeah, is there a sauna as well? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need a, some some little parts of, of kind of a comfy life to keep up the mood. Mm -hmm. But are you were you completely disconnected? I guess you had satellite internet. Uh, was that the case? Or? Um, yes. So um, they just recently changed it. When I was the first time on Polarstein, we only had um, this e this kind of um, web um, mail interface that was on our only connection, um, and a um, a satellite phone where you could buy um, just cards for. 
that is of course quite expensive and it often interrupts your whatever. So that was really quite intense, like no WhatsApp, no checking of your own mails, um, only like the emails were maximum size, something like I think 50 kilobytes. So no images and um, yeah, that was quite tough, but now they changed it and now you have um, WhatsApp connection on Plush oh, okay. as well. Of course, also no, um, uh, no images and no sound, but um, still you can text. Um, Which is WhatsApp, actually a massive like, difference. Exactly. Yeah, because otherwise you you need to teach your friends again to write emails. Yeah. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is a bit difficult. <laughs> what about uh, the food? Were you eating a lot of baked beans, or was it pretty good? Uh, yeah, I mean you can tell from the food how long you're already on on the ship. So at the beginning there's still salad, and then there is <laughs> there are still tomatoes and carrots, and at a certain point it's just everything canned. So um, and then the salad is yeah, I mean. Um, more, uh, more everything that you can just like yeah store a long time. But um, the kitchen is really good. I mean, I think there's something like six to seven people working there. We have our own baker, so mm. she was doing um, fresh bread for us each day and cake, and um, we we get served um, three or may, yeah three main uh, main dishes per day, and um, it's quite uh, it's, it's really good food. I mean. It's, kind of traditional old German food, but um, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, is, so the, the ship is German, right? Polish down uh, is German, but yeah. yeah, I see. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm guessing you got a lot of work done. Uh, I mean, you're, you're isolated from any internet distraction. You've, you're, you've got the ice right out your window. You're <laughs> surrounded by scientists, lots of papers written perhaps. Yeah, it's really, really productive. That's true. But unfortunately, um, productive in sense of data collection. So um, I think we nobody really managed to write a paper at that time because you're just trying to, you're, I mean, in the mornings, you're, you're packing the last items you need for the ice. Then you're on the ice, um, you get some lunch and then you go back on the ice and then you return. And then you need to store the data. You need to copy all the field notes that you made into a digital format. You need to just do all the quality checks. So I think the main challenge is really to, to keep up with, um, with your documentation so that all the data you collected during the day is really well documented mm. so that it's not lost to, to, yeah, for future generations. Because we really want that this data is understandable also for people in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Does that mean, uh, so is all the data open source then? Can can people get access to it? Um, I think they're going to release it in a year or in two years. So there is a deadline and then it's all open source. Yeah. And before people who attended have the chance to write their papers about mm. it mm. and do the quality checks. And get their PhDs and so on. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I, I, I would love to take part in an expedition like this. I, I, uh, I don't think I'm gonna, in my profession, I don't think I'm going to get the chance. But uh, I, I imagine that when Polish Den was first going out, they probably got applications from all sorts of people wanting to jump on the ship, uh, scientists and non-scientists as well. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we also had some. Uh, there was uh, one way for a non-scientist to join, and that was um, via um, an outreach project where some teachers um, joined, oh. and they prepared now a lot of um, school material. Uh, what is, I think, a really, really good uh, thing um, to also, yeah, teach uh, students a bit about the expedition. But um, except of that, yeah, I think it, it's also a good chance to apply for a crew position. But then you need to be able to either cook or, um, yeah, do mechanics or <laughs> something like that. It's crazy that there were 50 uh, people working on the ship who were non-scientists just to keep the ship running. So I'm, I'm imagining you had diesel electric generators and it's it's not a nuclear powered vessel right it's it's diesel or no no it's diesel yeah I see. Hmm. yeah um, i mean it might be that i think during mosaic they reduced the numbers a bit because they didn't have to um drive the ship the whole time mm -hmm. but um but if they are in normal operation mode you have to consider that the ship is running 24 hours so you need actually three times the amount of people you need to run for the ship so that you have uh, three shifts. I see. Okay. And um, yeah, that's just an abstinence. Uh, that's the numbers. And I mean, it's it's a big ship. It's, I think, something like 100 meters long. And then, yeah, and then you have to cater the, the catering. And um, so we have like our own weather people on board, for example, for the helicopter um, operations as well, so that the that uh, somebody who is skillful in weather forecasts is doing that on board and tells them the helicopter pilots whether they can fly or not um is that why you yeah. do the sled work you every day the helicopter couldn't fly you're pulling the sled oh it was a combination i mean there were also um other groups needed the helicopter as well mm -hmm. and then there was a lot of bad weather yes we had a lot of clouds <laughs> was there anyone doing um analysis of underneath the ice sheet with uh rovs or um yes but you weren't yeah. part of any of that what were they looking uh, for no but um um in my group they they do this um the measurements on the on our rough um were um i think uh so we had parts that were concentrated on light so on light transmission through the ice they had um really special cameras on it that captured all the light that was going through the ice but then they were also um doing um operations for the team that was um sampling for example um sediment flux from the ice so whenever something was falling down they had traps in the ice where they um, could collect all the material and the, the rough was um, exchanging those traps mm -hmm. and um, then they also did a lot of eco sounding so they just um, collected uh, uh, an image of the underside of the ice um, and also how they changed of course is it green um, with all yeah, the a bit. Okay. so it's like a forest <laughs> underneath yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to, to kind of show, show images here, but yeah, um, it's, it's definitely, at least in, in the summer, it gets green. and um, I can put images uh, up on screen. In <laughs> Okay, okay, yeah, I can send you some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, so one thing I, I, I'm, I might be misremembering this. I, I read an article at some point about, I don't know if it's in the, the Southern Hemisphere or up in the North, that there are, there's a species of krill which lives off algae and this krill is one of the most numerous species on earth and is responsible it's in the food chain it's responsible for feeding you know it's it's one of the lower trophic levels that everyone else depends on and so i was wondering if you know you know if if 
if you have an increase of this uh, algae growth and then a collapse, if you're going to have flow on effects where you have a crashing krill population and the whales die, or <laughs> mm. uh, is that is this something that's been spoken about by the researchers there on the boat um, that you you know um, anything about? Yeah, I think I'm I'm not too deep into that topic to be really a good uh, to give really a, a good answer on this, um, but I think it's definitely an option that is considered. So that they try to understand the whole food web um, to see, um, yeah, whether this could be a, 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 um, a case. I think the whole, for me at least, I normally associate this whole um, food uh, krill and then whale discussion more with the Southern Ocean, so more with uh, the waters around Antarctica. But there is for sure also an impact in the Arctic Ocean when this population yeah, is decreasing just because it's not there any longer when it's associated with under ice algae. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. One day I'm going to get on the Polish turn and then I'm going to go see <laughs> for myself. Yes. <laughs> yeah.